Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me, as ever, in the studio, we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us this week, we have Head of Policy at MCC Brussels and an Associate Fellow of the Academy of Ideas, Jacob Reynolds. No, thanks for having me. Coming up on today's show, the French farmers' siege of Paris, the tartan tyranny of Nicola Sturgeon, and the right-wing paranoia over Taylor Swift. Now, if you're watching us on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe and click the bell because it really helps the channel. And if you're listening to us on audio, then just make sure you subscribe using your favorite podcast app. So for the best part of this week, French farmers have been engaged in what they're calling the siege of Paris. They've encircled the capital city, blocking all of the key motorways. And although there are many specific demands in France, uh, it's quite clear that this is part of a Europe-wide revolt of farmers of people who work in agriculture and also various other kind of uh, more material industries. Um, Jacob, I mean, you'll have seen some of these people in Brussels as well. Tom and I have seen, met with farmers in Berlin. It's happened in Holland, it's happened in Ireland. What do you think ties all these farmers' protests together? Why are they all so angry? Why is it kicking off everywhere? Yeah, I think there's three points to make on this. The first, as you say rightly, is that this is like has already turned into a pan-European movement. And the reason for that, which is the second point, is that there's something that ties all these policies together. And that's the environmental agenda of the EU, to put it in a nutshell. Mm. Whether it's the uh, rule, increasingly stringent rules on all kinds of agricultural emissions, most importantly being nitrates or nitrogen, um, or set-aside policies, or even uh, something that's beginning to emerge, which is the way, and lots of farmers that we've been speaking to right across Europe have really picked up on this, is that farmers are increasingly being made to kind of they're being used to balance the books in environmental Mm. terms. So whether it's forcing them to set aside land, which can then be traded as a carbon credit for, say, a chemicals factory, so the chemical factory can carry on producing. But farmers are beginning to work out that policies emanating from the European Union, which are being enforced dutifully, although differently, in different European countries, but they are being kind of made the scapegoats Mm. so that the EU can reach its environmental targets and its net zero targets. And that means for them, quite simply, the end of their agriculture culture as they know it and this has a a special effect on smaller farms who are not able to comply with the stringent uh, regulations the reporting requirements all these kind of things so the thing that really unites us right across europe is the the rubber hitting the road of the green agenda yeah and tom i mean there is this sense that these things are simply being imposed from on high Mm -hmm. whether that's from brussels or from berlin or paris you know a bureaucrat comes up with a target that says, say, like the EU's farm to fork strategy says you've got to use 50% fewer pesticides or 10% fewer uh, fertilizers. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, it, it, when that actually has to be implemented at the farm level, I mean, it's madness. It just doesn't work, but it seems to work in the bureaucrat's head. I think that's exactly it. And when you speak to some of these farmers, that's one thing that they'll say very quickly is that they have no idea what they're talking about. They're coming up with these rules in Brussels or Berlin or Paris or whatever with no understanding of what's feasible. Um, often you'll hear complaints about it's a it's a different rule every week. It's this kind of sense that they're constantly on the receiving end of these regulations. And I, I think it's no surprise that it's been the people who are actually at the, essentially at the forefront of agriculture or industry 
or haulage or what mm. have you who have been the first to revolt against this because obviously things like high energy prices or you know policies which impact upon the food supply and so on are going to be felt across society but these are the people who feel it most keenly it's obviously going to hit them in the pocket um, they understand this stuff is nonsense and it mm. doesn't work and there's obviously a big contrast particularly between people who work in the cities who aren't going to uh, you know outside of generally high energy prices say aren't going to necessarily experience or recognize the full absurdity of the green agenda than people who actually work in it but i'm also very struck by how there is this pan-european farmers movement um which as jacob was outlining there has a lot to do with eu regulation but how there's also a kind of broader revolts going on in these industries across the West more broadly. Yeah. Um, and you see them very clearly in conversation with one another. Mm. Um, and I think that you could apply that easily to the truckers' protests in Canada. There was a similar kernel where you have rules being imposed from on high and a sense that you, you can't push us around like this anymore and that being pushed back in the term of COVID mandates in that instance. I think the Gilets jaunes were an early manifestation of this. Um, people living outside of the cities, in the suburbs, in the peripheries who rely on their cars but are being hit by punishing green taxes, just saying they're not willing to put up with it anymore. And I think that's something that's really fascinating, not least because of the fact that they are really clearly in conversation with one another. Yeah. You see that with the farmers across Europe, but you also see it between these different revolts as well. So I think it's really interesting, it's really inspiring, and long may it continue, frankly. Definitely. And, and Jacob, I think it's fair to say that the elites are also in conversation with each other across the world, um, or maybe they're not. Maybe they're, maybe it's a sign of cluelessness. But the reaction is always the same: is to say that they're fascists. They, you know, what are they complaining about? What's wrong with them? Don't they understand how important the green agenda is? Yeah, exactly. And th I mean, this is the point about them being kind of the farmers or the truckers, whatever, being forced to kind of become the foot soldiers for the green movement, even though they don't want to be, and now they're kicking back against this. And that's why what's going on has a real populist quality to it. People mm. understand instinctively, people out there protesting or blocking roads, understand that it's them, and they have wide support, as we know, amongst large sections of society in Germany, in, in Belgium, in France, everywhere, that they have a wide sense of support because this is a populist kind of revolt against policies of the elites and the elites response as you say is always to double down mm. always to say that well, it's probably the russians organizing it or it's fascism yeah. or whatever it is there was a particularly interesting example in brussels where so they set up the farmers set up camp today uh, outside the european parliament and immediately and there were tweets from this guy who runs a uh, the kind of lgbt ngo and he was he took a picture of a fire he'd clearly never been to anything resembling a protest before he took a picture of a fire and was like this is our january 6th moment <laughs> <laughs> to come and get us and it's like and that explain that kind of it really that they're on the one hand clueless about the policies mm. but on the other hand they're desperate for this kind of valor representing themselves as bravely defending a kind of special agenda the green democratic agenda mm. as they would yeah. like to see it against those kind of uneducated ill-informed selfish people who won't simply give up their livelihood so that the <laughs> eu can meet its targets <laughs> and, and tom you know one of the uh, slogans that keeps coming up is no farmers no food mm -hmm. i mean do you get the sense that the sort of laptop class if you like have just forgotten how important the material economy is how I, important they are. I think that's exactly it and as we've been talking about there's there's one thing that connects a lot of these industries which is the fact that these are people the people who are in protest whether that's the truckers or the farmers or whoever they know where the food comes from they know how the energy is produced they mm. know how the goods get from a to b and they know that you cannot do any of those things if you follow this agenda that's being hammered on them by the elites and i think they're also you know by 
parking their tractors on the elite's lawn, as it were, demonstrating that they are actually very essential to how society functions. You don't want to get on the wrong side of people who operate heavy machinery, but also yes. if they don't show up to work tomorrow, it has a big impact. Yeah. If half of the French government didn't show up tomorrow, no one would probably notice. So this is something <laughs> which is being really asserted by these movements. And I think characterising them as a populist movement is, is very crucial. There's something that um, reminds me a lot of Brexit and various mm. electoral populist revolts we've seen in recent years, not because they're far-right or extreme as the people are trying to demonise them as being, um, but because of the fact that its social base seems to be very similar. You seem to have, across these different protests and also the, the support that they're getting from the public, a kind of coming together of working class and kind of lower middle class small business people who share a couple of clear things in common, one of which is that um, they're really on the sharp end of the economic price of a lot of these green yeah. policies, either because they haven't got much money to begin with or because their business is you know, directly impacted and if not decimated by a lot of these policies. But they also share... Um, a cultural condescension that is mm. heaped upon them by the elites, either because they've been dismissed as far-right and fascist and so on, or because they're just generally seen as kind of inelegant yokels who are probably just moaning about nothing um, and whose issues are just not particularly interesting <laughs> to, yeah. to the elites and to politicians, even though they're fundamental to how society feeds itself, powers itself, runs and so on. So I think you're really seeing a kind of clear constituency emerge and it's that, it's that social base that we've seen being behind populism across Europe and the West time and time again in recent years. Definitely. Um, Jacob, briefly, before we move on, um, I just want to talk a bit about some news that came out from Brussels. Um, there's been this sort of plan being discussed at quite high EU level, talking about how they could uh, possibly wreck the Hungarian economy, because Hungary is obviously seen as a country that doesn't quite toe the line on a lot of mm. EU issues. It has quite a populist government. I mean, what have you made of, of that? Yeah, well, essentially, I mean, the trigger for this is Hungary's reluctance or until today, their reluctance to commit to uh, extra funds for Ukraine. But you don't have to take any position on Ukraine at all to understand the issue at stake, which is that Hungary is increasingly made uh, into a kind of scapegoat for not, as you say, towing the line on a whole range of issues from immigration to gender ideology and all the rest of it. And this leaked memo, which very kind of quickly backfired uh, mm. and exposed, the, in a way, the cluelessness of the elite to run the European Union, thinking that they could kind of talk down the Hungarian economy when, broadly speaking, the fundamentals of the economy are quite strong and all the rest of it. EU money is obviously important and, and necessary for, in, for certain elements of Hungarian society, but they can't just kind of tank the Hungarian economy, but actually it really backfired because yeah. they kind of went well beyond their mandate and it exposes what is the, the way that the EU is transforming itself, which is not a kind of, if it ever was, a kind of genuine community of nations as the rhetoric would have it and a kind mm. of coming together of people across Europe to, for some kind of shared future. Instead, it's increasingly a top-down, led right from the centre organisation that tries to use economic blackmail to make countries toe the line. And that's why it's, well, it was important that this thing was leaked and then, but more importantly, it really backfired. And yeah. I think it exposes the way, as I say, that the, the EU has moved beyond kind of consensus politics and really seeks to demonise and stigmatise and blackmail countries that aren't prepared to go along with whatever the latest fashion of EU elites is. So Nicola Sturgeon appeared before the UK COVID inquiry this week, and it seems to have finally almost dawned on the commentary that she's not actually a saint um, mm. in the way that they seem to believe. So there's been a couple of uh, quite significant accusations held at her. She's been accused and she's admitted actually to deleting pretty much all of her WhatsApps from uh, her time uh, in office during the pandemic. Uh, she, despite the fact that she said 
when the inquiry was announced that she wanted to be fully transparent. She's been accused of buying burner phones or allowing staff to use burner phones uh, paid for with uh, Scottish government expenses, again, to, uh, you know, wriggle out of uh, having the messages read. Um, and maybe most significantly, um, she's been accused, and I think this is a pretty fair accusation, of politicising the pandemic, of using it as a sort of platform mm. uh, to push for Scottish independence. Tom, what have you made of uh, made of this and the sort of uh, unravelling of Sturgeon? I'm, like you, I'm struck by the fact that it's this week that it's these set of accusations which have made everyone realise that maybe she's not the most wonderful human being who ever existed, that it was her kind of admitting. And yes, it was very shady and embarrassing. Mm. Um, and she was caught out on a lie, effectively, which is something which is always going to make um, people reappraise this individual who they built up as being so wonderful. But if you think about all the other things she's been responsible for yeah. in recent years, if you think about the ongoing criminal investigation <laughs> into her and her husband about the alleged misuse of... Um, party funds, if you think about all of the various kind of internal scandal that they had over the Alex Salmond allegations mm. and the allegation from him that the SNP led by Nicola Sturgeon were launching effectively a witch hunt against him, which if nothing else, even if you don't believe the full extent of those claims, the very clear way in which the offices of the Scottish state were used to try and suppress some of his evidence being put before MPs. All of these things were very, very shady. So you've got that. You've got some of the policies she's been responsible for, which long mm. before COVID were insanely authoritarian. You know, the named person scheme wasn't something she came up with, but certainly was something that she cheerleaded, assigning a state guardian to every child. This is really sinister stuff. Even that... Um, Supreme Court case where her plan to hold an, an unconstitutional referendum on yeah. breaking up the United Kingdom was something that just came and went without much discussion. Even though when Boris Johnson tried to, you know, prorogue Parliament for a couple of extra days, people talked about talked about it as if it was our January 6th moment. You know, yeah. so this is it, the complete um, disparity between the things that she's actually been caught doing and in some cases knocked back and punished for doing, just never really registered. And obviously on the one hand, that's just double standards. People like her or agree with her or like the fact that she, you know, gives it to the Tories and therefore she gets a free pass on certain issues. But I think it's also a reminder that um, a lot of the things that they get very They've gotten very hysterical about um, in recent years when the government does it, when they start calling the Tories authoritarian and fascist and so on. The, the Scottish government have sort of pioneered with the SNP a kind of form of authoritarianism, which is really stark, really extreme. And as I yeah. say, it goes well beyond COVID. And yet, because they like it, because they agree with it, because it's going to clamp down on views that they dislike or it's mm. going to meddle in the lifestyles of people that they don't much care for or whatever, they've just been fine with it so yeah it's interesting that it's this that's unraveling about but it wasn't any of the other scandals <laughs> or any of the other insane policies that she actually it's, implemented it's worth saying with this this no person the name person scheme you know it was, it was struck down by the supreme court as being in breach of human rights now mm. that's supposedly that's the worst crime in you know the worst thing you can do in in uh, society today um i mean it was a really draconian policy i mean the idea would be that You'd literally have people from the state finding out, you know, how kids' bedrooms were decorated, were they consulted and what TV programmes, um, you know, they're allowed to watch to find out if their parents are abusing them, essentially. I mean, it's just completely mad. Um, Jacob, one thing that has obviously, be this being the COVID inquiry, it has led a lot of people maybe to reassess Nicola Sturgeon's pandemic performance. Um, it seemed as if every time, you know, she took every opportunity to be just that bit more authoritarian than Johnson which is quite incredible considering how authoritarian mm. the English lockdowns were. Yeah, well, I think in a way you might see this as slightly a, a, a kind of a way of letting off the hook some people for 
subscribing to and supporting what were her increasingly draconian measures and the revelations that you've talked about in terms of how she deliberately sought to politicize their response to the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic is a political matter, so there's nothing wrong with some politics being involved. But the way that she tried to constantly distinguish herself from and use it as a grandstanding attempt mm. to say that, oh, we're the ones that take health seriously. It's, those, it's the nasty people in Westminster, nasty Boris Johnson who doesn't care about people's health. And we're kind of the good and the moral and the virtuous ones because we're going to do extra clampdowns whenever we see. And that very deliberate policy has really been exposed. And in a way, there is this element, I think, of people looking back on that and thinking maybe we shouldn't have gone along with some of this maybe yeah. it, was, it was all a bit too far and mm. she's kind of like this has become the issue that she's tripped up on and it is worth saying that the details that you've outlined in terms of burner phones it's like something from like a kind of post-war small corrupt european country rather than like the kind of 21st century country and there's this kind of mafia element to the way that mm. the smp operates which i think as much as you're right tom that obviously that you could have pinned a lot of scandals on her in the past it's like when it's so obvious and yeah. so blatant the kind yeah. of this kind of clan-like mafia behavior of the SNP really stands exposed and I mean in a way sadly this issue Nicola Sturgeon will take the fall for it to some degree and the broader kind of structure mm -hmm. of SNP power in Scotland remains largely unchallenged sure Labour might make up some seats in the next election in Scotland but that brought the way that Scotland has turned into this kind of semi-autonomous as I say mafia style state yeah. is like that that we really need to get to grips with and, and Labour obviously agrees with every authoritarian measure that the <laughs> yeah. SNP has uh, put forward um Tom I mean that certainly Nicola Sturgeon represents, I think it's fair to say, a style of leader yeah. that we've come to know and love, or not so, not love so much. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you kind of put her in the same category, I would, as Jacinda Ardern yeah. or Trudeau. Justin Trudeau. Yeah. This kind of liberal, strong person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> liberal, strong man, liberal, strong woman. <laughs> and not so liberal as it turns out. Yeah, no, mm. I think that's exactly right. And. Uh, and I think there's there's clearly those leaders are kind of in conversation with one another. Yeah. Um, there's a, uh, there's a whole range of issues which needn't be related yet are for some reason, and that you see repeated, repeatedly kind of leapt upon by each of these leaders. I mean, the fact that, for instance, the Scottish National Party, which you know allegedly its aim is to break up the United Kingdom, the fact that the thing that brought its one of its most successful leaders down was because she was determined to put rapists in women's prisons. It's a really striking kind of fact that there is a, an array of kind of, of elite issues which mm. they are really preoccupied with. They will push it through by any means necessary. Yeah. And yet there are things which are deeply unpopular, authoritarian, damaging. Um, and we see that kind of across the piece. And also uh, inability to recognise how authoritarian or just demented a lot of the a lot of these policies are on the part of the commentariat who treat all of those th three figures certainly as if they are kind of earthbound saints like yeah. they're wonderful how could you possibly dislike them even though what they're doing is incredibly damaging and are often carrying on in an incredibly authoritarian if not corrupt fashion so um it's yeah it's been fascinating how the halo of these sorts of policies how it how that um seems to mean that no one wants to criticize them in the mainstream media but also just how similar the agenda is of a lot of these different political parties which yes are generally seen as kind of center left ish whatever yeah. that means these days but there's no reason why you know yeah. certainly in a historical sense they'd be so attached to all of these things particularly yeah. if they're supposedly liberal left as they're often characterized yeah i mean they're all very hardline on lockdown yeah. all very into the trans issue of course and all very into green stuff i mean that's that seems to be one of the big overarching things which is especially interesting in the case of the SNP because the case the case for Scottish independence for so long was built on the idea that there's all this oil wealth yeah. that is going to you know the United Kingdom and could be Scotland's but now you know when by the time Nicola Sturgeon left 
the SNP policy was actually, well, you know, we don't want to dig, dig any more oil out of the North Sea. So they even contradict the own, you know, their own sort of founding principles for these newer kind of elite ideals. Yeah, it's very right, Tom, to point out the way that lots of these people have kind of become undone mm-hmm. in a similar time. I mean, like mm. Trudeau's still going, but you might kind of add Angela Merkel into the mix a yeah. little bit in the way that someone who always kind of presented the right image, but actually when you scratch the surface, of the, there wasn't kind of much of political substance there. And this, this strange left liberal identification with somebody who's kind of it is almost like a reflection of the Blair. They're kind of good enough on camera. Mm. They like say some of the right yeah. things and know how to word things, but actually they haven't got any answers to any of the problems that are facing their country at a fundamental level. The SNP's kind of the failed case for independence being a good a good case in point. No kind of vision of what Scotland might look like independent, other than other than kind of the and not the the rest of the UK. And so mm-hmm. they've all become undone because they don't have anything of substance to them really. And I think so. I mean, it's good we can celebrate these things coming undone. We need a little bit more of the active pushback because we can't just always rely on the fact that the elites will end up floundering in their own kind of incompetence yeah. but but so we need a little bit more of the pushback but we yeah. can welcome that they're kind of falling from grace it is interesting as well how in a sense it shows how easily impressed the media are or mm-hmm. at least how focused on quite superficial things they are because i think merkel was another good example you know sort of center right but still very much that kind of centrist yeah. establishment um was seen as so wonderful for so long. And now, you know, in the space of months, um, her entire reputation is like the greatest post-war leader that Europe has ever had. Um, it's completely unraveled because yeah. not only did she pursue a lot of policies which were mad and damaging, but of course a lot of the people um, who ended up writing her political obituary agree with all of those things. Mm-hmm. But she was also just incredibly inept. I mean, she yeah. sought up all of these tremendous social and economic problems for Germany, which are now coming home to roost. So a lot of these people, are, as well as being wrong and are really rubbish as well. But just because of the fact that they sounded the right notes or they looked a certain way or they yeah. were young and fresh and interesting or just drop-dead gorgeous in just, Justin Trudeau's case, they thought they were the dog's bollocks. Like, yeah. they, are re- they say populist voters, you know, they're just won over by Trump or Boris being a bit funny or whatever, but yeah. I think they are much more vapid. Right, so Taylor Swift, um, is she a government psyop? <laughs> Incredibly, this is a question that has consumed a lot of the sort of right-wing <laughs> influencer sphere um, for the past week or so, and for some people even longer. Um, a lot of Republicans are worried that um, Taylor Swift might give her presidential endorsement to Joe Biden, and then is that the end game for Trump, is their kind of thinking... And with Swift sort of being a country star, maybe she's been got at, is, I guess, the theory. Um, there are some even wilder variations on that. Some people say she's done a deal with George and Alex Soros um, as part of a plot to install Gavin Newsom in the White House. Um, other people managed to tag that into the COVID vaccines because um, her boyfriend, the NFL footballer, has once uh, did an advert for Pfizer. Um, Tom, what have, you, what have you made of this? I, I assume you don't agree that it is a government side. No, I wouldn't dismiss it out of that, no. <laughs> uh, no, it's very funny. And it's also, sometimes I can't work out whether some of this is semi-tongue-in-cheek, but mm. a lot of it really isn't. And yeah. I find that really fascinating. Aside from the the conspiratorial currents which run in parts of that politics, there's also just the um, a preoccupation with... Um, celebrity, because mm. of the fact that these people spend a lot of the time in the media, online, um, not out in the real world, touching grass, as people would say. Yeah. Um, and so they become really preoccupied with... Um, again sort of celebrities and things of this nature um and that was something which in a funny way kind of mirrors what um particularly has happened in recent years with celebrities where you have the left and the woke left in particular desperate to claim these individuals yeah. and actually getting very frustrated when these individuals don't toe the line on feminism or lgbt or 
Israel or whatever it might mm. be the issue of the day. Taylor Swift, funnily enough, was the focus for a lot of that rage for years because for, because of the fact that she seemed to adopt a kind of um, apolitical approach for many years. You know, that kind of Michael Jordan, Republicans buy sneakers as well. Sort of That yeah. seemed to be a kind of guiding ethic she kept out of yeah. politics. She obviously had this sort of Nashville background, as I understand, so therefore we can understand why you wouldn't want to alienate that section mm-hmm. of your audience. Um, but there was just these constant think pieces like, when is Taylor Swift going to say something about feminism? When is Taylor Swift going to say something about me too? Um, when will she say something about Gaza? Is well, actually, that seen, was a recent, yeah, yeah quite a, recently. A, a recent flurry of that stuff. And when is she going to denounce Trump? That was mm. a big one. Allegations that she was almost like a sort of alt-right pinup was like, a few yeah, years ago. Yeah. So it's like the mirror image of that nonsense, you know. And I think it, you have a similar dynamic, which is um, there's sections at the very online right, not least because they are very online, who are quite detached from ordinary concerns. It's why they can jump on culture war issues and almost distort them into something so over the top and extreme that they, they make it look ridiculous. They make the rest of yeah. us look bad who, into, who are into those issues, if you see what I mean. So I think there's a similarity in because p- though some of these individuals are quite detached from the communities that they think they're speaking on behalf of, they can become really obsessed with celebrities and people who they see as being their conduit to yeah. ordinary people. And I think this is probably a symptom of that to some extent. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, at the end of the day, what celebrities think is it doesn't actually impact that much on the average voter. I mean, you think about Trump's election in 2016, you know, he had none of the celebrities, all of the celebrities lined up behind Hillary Clinton. Mm. And what good did that do her? Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, conspiracy theories often come in a way from a perceived place of weakness. Mm. And like the fact that all these people are hyperventilating about the fact that Taylor Swift's going to swing the election in the other way is, is kind of bizarre because mm. it speaks to their complete not just their lack of faith, but their lack of connection to the people who they say they share politics with, the kind of broad swathe of, uh, of American people. And so, and, but the irony of that is that by kind of casting themselves in the, the role of victims, in the role of those who are going to be done to by global conspiratorial powers, they miss the real weakness, which is the weakness of the elites, yeah. who are desperate to claim someone like Taylor Swift for their own, as you said. Mm. The, the same Similar things happened uh, among some European politicians who were like, if only I can get a, a photo up with... Taylor Swift and so yeah, don't, don't they want her to encourage people to vote in the European election? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. they're but the elite because they know they have no connection at all to anyone. Yeah. They're casting around for anyone who might represent something. I don't know what it is, mm. but like, all right, if only we can get Taylor Swift on our side, then it's all done. So by the, this kind of very online online right who are obsessed with images become yeah. kind of transfixed by social media. Mm. They've lost any connection at all to any kind of political power because they don't have a connection with people. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And Tom, do you think there's a sort of danger in this kind of growing paranoia? Because it is, you know, it is irrational to obsess over Taylor Swift. And it's not nobody's who we're talking about. I mean, some of the people are like Jack Posobiec, very mm-hmm. influential conservative commentator. Rolling Stone magazine has said that actual, you know, Trump aides are worried about Taylor Swift and, and they have this strange quote where they're potentially going to declare holy war mm-hmm. on her. <laughs> uh, we've, um, similarly, you know, the rise of conspiracy theories, just it seems to have become a lot more mainstream mm-hmm. on the US right, certainly, you know, an obsession with the COVID vaccines. This is somehow related to the Taylor Swift story. There was a woman on One American News Network who deliberately, you know, conflated the what she called the uh, COVID death shots mm-hmm. with uh, Taylor Swift's boyfriend. I mean, it just... <laughs> Yeah, we know these characters exist. Yeah. I suppose the question is kind of how... How, how, how much does it matter? How much does yeah. it matter? Um, I think what's, what is clear, though, is I think that um, particularly for people who 
claim to be involved in sort of populism. I think conspiracy thinking, conspiratorialism is a complete dead end. If anything, yeah. it's the antithesis of what populism is supposed to be about, which is the idea that ordinary people should have more sway, that what people want they should get, that mm. um, we should make democracy more real and deeper and, and so on. Whereas all the conspiratorial thinking is about how there's this plot a- against us, you know, what you think is true is actually bollocks, you know, yeah. um, all of these kind of tropes about sheeple and so on. It's a really undemocratic, anti-democratic sort of way of looking at the world is that people are just being hoodwinked and they mm. don't even realise it. So that's clearly a dead end. I think it's also just a dead end engaging in um, just th- this obsession with celebrity and social media as we're sort of talking about it. I mean, the people who put Trump into office, the people who got Brexit over the line, are, are people who don't have the luxury of being on their phones all day. And I think that fundamental kind of disconnect is one of the things that um, certainly tripped the sort of liberal establishment up when those two bloody notices were delivered to them in 2016. But I think it also um, has the potential to trip sections of the very online right up because of the fact that um, they're really preoccupied with certain things which really don't affect your average voter. That's yeah. not to say that the culture wars, we might call it, or wokeness around these issues aren't really important to people they absolutely are but there's um they're obsessing over specific things they're exaggerating many things they're getting very conspiratorial about certain things as well Um, and i think they're confusing the dynamism of their own x page with with public opinion yeah and it's just a dead end Mm. if nothing else but as you say there is also this kind of darker side to it which um we should definitely be concerned about. But more than anything, this stuff just looks ridiculous yeah. <laughs> to most people. I think that's been certainly the upshot of this week and all this Taylor Swift stuff. Definitely. I think some people should just log off for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.